sending out text messages. That's hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on that. So I think that was probably the most perplexing aspect of this whole political business industry was the vast amount of money being (laughs) spent here. Welcome to the Business of Politics podcast. I'm Eric Wilson, the managing partner of Startup Caucus, which is an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Politics is big business. In the 2020 U.S. elections, more than $14 billion was spent up and down the ballot getting candidates elected. On this show, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Our guest today is Glenn Parham, co-founder of Pundit Analytics, which is a digital content monitoring tool for politics and advocacy. Glenn is originally from California, and he studied at UC Berkeley. Before starting Pundit, Glenn was a software engineer at Microsoft and a data intelligence engineer at CrowdPulse. Now, Pundit Analytics is a platform that aggregates and analyzes the digital output, everything from emails, websites, social media, and ads from elected officials, candidates, and political organizations to provide users with a comprehensive view into online activity. In our conversation, we talk about the differences that surprised Glenn when making the transition from Silicon Valley to Capitol Hill, the role of money in politics, and the opportunities for automation that Glenn sees throughout campaigns and advocacy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Glenn, what about the political space attracted you to start Pundit Analytics? I grew up always kind of fascinated in politics. Uh, My dad was always really involved in politics. And I always was passionate about technology. And it wasn't until I went to UC Berkeley and a couple months after I got there, Trump was elected, which kind of catalyzed a lot of my interest in advocacy, politics, and kind of the intersection with technology. It wasn't until a couple of years later that I was able to find a group of other people at Berkeley that were also passionate in that intersection between politics and tech. And then we were able to start an organization called Political Computer Science at UC Berkeley, which is still around today doing a lot of amazing research. And then we were able to spin off from that organization, Pundit Analytics, which was able to use a lot of really fascinating latest artificial intelligence and tech to monitor just politics across the field. Great. I know that we've got several other folks who are coming out of that political computer science group at Berkeley who are also involved in Startup Caucus. So I think it just really speaks to your your legacy that that you know, is still going and still producing really good entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's been really amazing. They're still going strong, that organization. Um, I just checked out their website the other day and they're using just crazy, very nerdy tech to analyze all sorts of kind of bipartisan legislation and all sorts of stuff. So what surprised you the most about the business of politics compared to your experience in more traditional commercial technology? I think I was surprised by the the breadth of, and I guess the amount of money in the political world coming from a very different kind of more traditional tech industry. I, I was just not aware of the amount of money that is pumped in cycle after cycle, especially these past few cycles into advocacy, getting people elected, 
you know, even sending out text messages, that's hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on that. So I think that was probably the most perplexing aspect of this whole political business um, industry was the the vast amount of money being <laughs> spent here. I hear these numbers thrown around like, oh yeah, last cycle, $8 billion spent on whatever. But when you really get into this industry, you see, yeah, they are spending $20 million on Facebook ads at a time. And you can see really the kind of itemized receipt of expenditures. We've been analyzing a lot of FEC disclosures and expenditures and just seeing how like these political consultants are getting seven-figure paydays. That was something that I just didn't realize was so, I guess, concentrated in the hands of a couple of consultant groups. <laughs> Broadly speaking, without singling anyone out, do you think that the money is is well spent in politics or... From my, you know, from my understanding thus far, I think the money is very mismanaged <laughs> in in politics. I think the money that's been newly funneled to the digital side, that is there's a lot more bang for your buck there with, you know, with Facebook ads and just the digital footprint. But in general, when I'm looking at the expenditures by these packs and whatever, and it just kind of seems like these this money is going very blindly to groups and you can't really see how that's converting into more votes. That has been kind of concerning for me because I think with the digital side, it's very easy to track. It's, you know, the number of impressions, how that's converting people, et cetera. Um, But when it's just blindly going into a consultant group or whatever, it's kind of like, eh, you know, it's hard to get some benchmarks out of that. So describe some of the unique challenges that a software as a service entrepreneur might face selling to campaigns and and party committees. I think for us early on, because we were not from the political world, you know, we always were passionate about politics, but we weren't really part of this like, quote unquote, political establishment. So really navigating that network was, I think very difficult for us. And I'm very grateful for people like you who were able to kind of show us all the the chaos that is the, <laughs> the political establishment and realizing that a lot of it is just going to be person-to-person connections, personal connections that is going to get your first few sales. And I think another really main concern or issue that we had to really navigate was how we approached various political parties <laughs> and you know various political candidates and whether we wanted to serve one party or all parties and how each party would kind of receive that was i think a very challenging uh, obstacle for us pundit started out as a social network for politics that was sort of the the idea that you were working on and it's an idea yeah. that we see a lot you know, especially given concerns about deplatforming and censorship. What about that problem is so compelling to you? And what did you learn studying that? Yeah. So we spent one to two years trying to build a social network for political discussion specifically because we saw, you know, we were in Berkeley during the Trump presidency. So you can imagine how that devolves very quickly with regards to any political discussion. So we tried to create a place that allowed people to discuss political controversial topics based on merit and, you know, removing any 
I guess, ill will or, you know, personal feelings attached to these various political discussions. I, I think, unfortunately, one of the things that we realized maybe a little too late was that some people like being contrarian and having instigating fights. Not everybody comes to the table to discuss politics with goodwill. A lot of people like to kind of be instigators. But I think the original intent of the, the social network was a very pure and, and valid idea. But it's it's just, especially with respect to monetizing a social network like that, it was a very <laughs> difficult network to kind of navigate. It seems to me that people want to be able to speak about politics on social media, but they don't want to hear other people talk about politics on social right. media. Yeah. And so that imbalance creates a problem, right, for for any sort of social network. And so I think it is still very much an, an interesting problem and, and question of, of what do we do about that, but right. obviously a very tough space because you do have to get the, kind of the scale and the platform and, and trust to be able to do that really well. Right. And so you obviously pivoted from a social networking platform to competitive intelligence. How did you decide to make that switch? And and what was that like for you and your co-founders? So a lot of the tech that we had built for the social network had to do with monitoring political discussion and monitoring sentiment and just analyzing how polarizing were different political ideologies, et cetera. So actually, when we came into contact with you, I think you messaged us on me on LinkedIn or something. Um, yeah, we, I think I found you on Product Hunt, actually. That's, that's my, Hunt. my okay. secret on finding people, you know, who are hustling. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So when, when we came out here to DC and we were just kind of talking, I think, to a lot of your colleagues at a random happy hour and people were talking about the need to really analyze their competitors in the political world, also somewhat in the private sector. And once we got back to San Francisco, me and my co-founders were like, hey, well, a lot of the tech that we're building for monitoring political discourse on social media, et cetera, could literally easily be applied to monitoring specific campaigns, different packs, how people are spending money on Facebook ads, all that kind of stuff. And from there, we thought, you know, this was a very compelling strategy to easily get revenue in the door and also kind of infiltrate more of a political network here in DC instead of viewing it from the outside in San Francisco. And so one of those key insights is all of the data that's flowing around in right. politics, whether that's public disclosures from FEC, from Facebook ads, to just sort of open source intelligence type things from, you know, like website changes or emails. Right. What is your view or sense of kind of the data landscape of politics and campaigns and advocacy that a lot of people just don't realize is out there? So I'm going to nerd out a little bit. So one of the things I did on the data intelligence side for one of the previous companies I worked at was using graph technologies. It's called like a graph database to really map how interconnected people are and how interconnected various networks are. And even though that was used more for like a military context, the same... And actually, there's a better, I think, use case for it in politics because I've learned here that things are so freaking interconnected. So using the same kind of graph technology, you're able to really map people's job positions that come from LinkedIn to their disclosures via the FEC or lobbyists. You know, there's a million different data points that can connect. 
And, you know, as a human, you're able to really do this kind of intuitively, but programmatically, it's very difficult to do that. But the, I think it, what's really compelling with like Pundit Analytics and a lot of what we're doing at Bullpen is really mapping all this programmatically and at a scale that is kind of unprecedented. We're talking hundreds of different organizations and campaigns, et cetera, mapping, connecting people, organizations, how money is flowing, all that, which is really exciting work that I'm really proud to be part of. So with Bullpen, what we've been able to do is compile a list of publicly available data. You know, sidetrack, I think a lot of people, there's this misconception that we're hacking phones and that we're very nefarious the way we collect data. And it's all publicly available data. I mean, every bit of data that we collect. But it's a matter of facilitating the graph and facilitating a a connected database. So what we've done at Bullpen is compile a list of publicly available data, whether that's FEC, expenditure reports, lobbyists, lobbying reports. There's so many different data sources that are publicly available that the government actually hosts on some rather archaic <laughs> systems. But you know, we have our ways of extracting that data. Always to the cheapest bidder, right? Yes. And really connecting those those data points. It's amazing the the wealth of data out there. And and this is a constant struggle for anyone who's ever tried to do good government or or transparency is that getting the data in a usable format, whether that's, you know, machine readable instead of PDFs is, you know, we've made a lot of progress over the last few years. But I think one thing that you still have to deal with, unfortunately, is malicious compliance. You know, people who will comply with the letter of the law, but not the spirit of it. And what's amazing is that technology is now catching up to the point where that doesn't matter, right? We can yes. read PDFs, we can transcribe videos and things like that. Yeah. And it, it, it's really fascinating to watch. I think I was more hopeful that there would have been a lot more work done on making things data accessible via API, like the government making it accessible via some API endpoint. And there has been a lot of work done. I think so data.gov, that's all they do is try to convert government data to and making it accessible via an API endpoint. But yeah, you're right. There's been many use cases in the past couple of months where we're like, screw it. We're not going to wait around for you know the government to make it accessible. Let's use artificial intelligence to scan these PDFs and convert it into some database. And you're now plugged in to both commercial tech, Silicon Valley, and political tech. From that perspective, what do you think will be the next big innovation to cross over from politics to tech or tech to politics? That's a very interesting question. I think that the work that like companies like Numenar are doing, you know, they've last cycle, they did a lot of work with several campaigns and were very successful. And I think that is kind of the next frontier for the political world. I think last cycle was just the tip of the iceberg. But from my experience, a lot of campaigns are really, I think, like a decade behind of where they should be with respect to automating outreach with texts and emails and Facebook ads. I think the next frontier for the political tech world is going to be that automation of outreach, which I think is like extremely powerful. Do you think that the technology is such, you know, the, the, there's something about the retail politics and the personal touch of things. And I think that's held off a lot of the automation. But do you think that where we are with artificial intelligence, that we can make that outreach a little bit more personal and engaging? 
Exactly. I think that that is the only way that we're going to make it personal and engaging with the kind of very customized ads, you know, automatically generating. And, you know, I've looked into this a lot myself, automatically generating Facebook ads, not just like launching the ad itself, but generating the content of the, like the image, right? The text that's displayed on the image that can be automatically generated. Maybe as you know, GPT-3, um, that's a huge new text generator that is widely used these days. And I think text models like that are going to be very, very powerful in the next couple of cycles with the automatic generation of content that is customized towards the issues that any particular voter cares about. Um, and as long as you know, Facebook allows for that kind of targeting, we're going to see that really escalate, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, this is something that I'm excited about as well. You know, we, we see that a, about a third of voters have a smart speaker like an Alexa right. uh, in their home and tremendous opportunities there to have customized on-demand conversations with candidates in your own right. living room is not that far off. But the challenge is, is that gulf between what human users are willing to accept and what technology can provide. Because there, there's still very much a culture in, in American politics, you know, especially in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, right. you know, where you have these early presidential primary states where they want to have, like, it's funny, like people will not make up their mind until they met every candidate in Iowa six times, right? right. Like, it, it, it's, <laughs> and so um, that's not the kind of scale that you can take to other campaigns. And so it'll be interesting to see how that acceptance of it. And I think one of the things that we see is the more widespread commercial technology becomes, the easier of a sell it is to voters. Right. Um, and I, I think on the other side, like there is something to be said for the adoption of the political industry in of itself. I, I think there are a lot of people who are kind of, I guess, hesitant to adopt the latest tech for, you know, maybe some valid reasons. But I think, yeah, people like yourself are really at the forefront of advocating for modernizing a lot of these instruments that we use for campaigning. So that's going to be fascinating to see this upcoming cycle. Yeah, I'm really excited about it and glad we're getting to work together on that. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts. And I would ask you to share this episode with a friend if it made you smarter. And with that, thank you for listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm Eric Wilson.